0: All right, welcome back to the Struck Podcast. I'm your co-host Dan Blewett. On today's episode, first we're going to chat a little bit about the Atlas V rocket, which is carrying Boeing's Starliner capsule. Uh, some of the issues that they've had going back to the hangar recently. Uh, we'll talk about Airbus. Um, just two jet sales in July, a little bit concerning. Also, back into some squabbles with Qatar uh, Qatar Airlines over some fuselage issues. We'll talk about FAA's approval of the first general a- aviation heads up display, which came back in June. Uh, DHL has added some electric aircraft um, with a new order from aviation. We'll talk about Lilium. They've also got a big order and a terrifying Russian hoverbike bike crash uh, as they were testing in Dubai recently. Good grief how that that pilot is alive. Alan, we'll get to that later, but. Uh, tell me a little bit about the Atlas V rocket. Boeing's had some had some trouble here, and it looks like they're going back to the drawing board a little bit. Um, are they playing catch-up to SpaceX and, and Blue Origin all this? I mean, what, what's the mission here as well?
1: Well, they're definitely playing catch-up to SpaceX, and their goal is to put crews up to the International Space Station, and SpaceX is doing that right now. And both SpaceX and Boeing were on the same pathway in terms of, uh, delivering people in, into orbit. The difference has been is in SpaceX got through the initial un, unmanned launch and, and docking procedures and came back down and then got the green light to then fly, well, I think they're up to three missions right now with that have been manned um, to the space station. So that's a good, pretty good track record for SpaceX. Boeing has been unable to really get off the launch pad. The earlier flight what the Starliner had a software glitch in terms of timing, and so the the spacecraft never made it up to orbit. If you remember, and that ended up costing the head of Boeing his job, which is at the time didn't seem possible, but it was just accumulation of things that was sort of the last straw. After that, they had a reorganization and they've changed management, but the Starliner still seems to be in trouble. Uh, and the, if if you see the latest news about it, there's not a lot of details but they had the spacecraft out on the launch pad, essentially ready to go. And we're doing some pre-flight uh, checks and they had 13 different valves not open when commanded to open. And that, that seems like a, that's a lot, right? And from the engineering perspective, you're like, holy heck, we got a, we got a big problem uh, because those valves are, are, sound like they're basically the same valve And the propulsion system that didn't open when commanded. (laughs) And from the latest uh, news stories going back and forth, they said it wasn't a corrosion issue. It wasn't necessarily a degradation issue inside the valves. It was something else. And they weren't even sure yet, or at least not publicizing what the issue was. But they were trying to command them. They were trying to command they actually brought the capsule back in, indoors, and we're trying to command those valves electrically, mechanically and thermally, something like that, like they're trying to nudge them into opening, which to me, doesn't sound like a great thing to be doing under NASA's watch. Like you, you don't want to be <laughs> you don't want to be trying out stuff uh, when your customer is over your shoulder. That's, that should have been figured out months ago, maybe years ago. So this is just bizarre. This, this whole scenario is bizarre because the feeling was a couple weeks ago is Boeing is going to get back on track. That was the, the feeling. And then this happens. So, Dan, do you, do you think that NASA is going to be feeling real good about this right now?
0: No, not with them like actively tinkering and trying to just like jam it into working. Yeah, it seems pretty. I'm sure it's not as haphazard as that, but it seems seems a little suspect.
1: It can be, right? On spacecraft, anytime you touch a spacecraft, there's a piece of paper, right? And there's already this this approval process to to touch it and to modify it and to open a panel of paperwork and there's paperwork to close it. So what it appeared from an outsider's point of view is that they're not trying to do anything to the spacecraft that would involve generating more paperwork besides creating a little test procedure to, to, to make the valves open and close a couple times and see if they could goose them into running without disassembling the spacecraft. Because once you start down that pathway it's disassembling, there's a lot of oversight and review. And also as you reassemble, there's a lot of oversight and review and there's also the likelihood of having some error because once you're out in those, um, uh, uh, site buildings near the launch pads. It's not the easiest place in the world to work. So uh, you got to wonder if this is really starting to tumble into major Boeing problem and how they're going to address it uh, to, to me. somebody's somebody's head's going to roll on this one Anderson or not, uh, just because that program has so, so much visibility and SpaceX is as we have seen, uh, getting their larger spacecraft up on the on the launch pad is going to have a launch here pretty soon, which is really going to stick a fork into Boeing in terms of just capabilities. So it's just this whole scenario is so bizarre and you would never have expected Boeing to be in this situation, which is unimaginable, really unimaginable at this point.
0: Yeah. It seems just in general that they've had lots of issues after you know, getting many of their planes out there that just recall, recall, recall another problem, another problem, another problem. It just seems like they've I don't know the word embattled. Seems like it fits Boeing in the last couple of years, you know, right? Starting with the 737 Max and seemingly with lots and lots of different aircraft maybe I don't know is this just that there's they're more often in the news cycle or is this really that there's seems to be more problems with Boeing manufacturing
1: it's a good that's a really good question because the first thing that gets pointed at is culture and I that's a very hard term to describe because there in a large company like that what is culture what does that even mean I, I when I used to work in aerospace at large, aerospace companies they would use the word our culture is this our culture is quality blah 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 <laughs> and the engineers and staff will look around at one another and go i have no idea what they're talking about and because it's your it's like you, you it's like your immediate family and your extended family sort of situation like you know what's going on around you. that's your around you and in your immediate family, you have a pretty good idea, you know, what your mom and dad are doing, what your and sisters are doing. But then you kind of get down to the second cousins. You're not really sure what's going on out there. Well, the same thing exists in, a, in any large organization. And if you're building a spacecraft or an airplane, there's a lot of second cousins <laughs> in that group that you just don't have any idea what uh, what they're up to, what they're doing. And, and how are you going to control that is the, is the kicker. And to to label that as culture. I'm not sure that is what it is as much as uh, geez, you know, just bad luck. Do you you just mark it up to bad luck at this point? It's or or like how can the CEO actually have any control over that? Right. Yeah. I mean, the CEO can't, but I, I was
0: actually looking at I can't remember why. But I was I was rolling down the list of murder rates for countries in the United States. And as you get down to the bottom where there's like effectively zero for lots and lots of countries, mostly in Asia and Europe, you start to wonder, like, why is it effectively zero in many of these countries? But then if you look at the Caribbean's uh, Latin America, it's consistently very, very high. And so even though there's millions of people in each of these countries, you have to start to say, well, you know, like in the safest countries in the world, there's got to just be like every household, every county, every province, whatever. There's just enough figureheads who say this is how we are. And this is what's not tolerated. And this is, you know, our our like it has to run really, really deep in, in instilling those values in people, um, you know, if you call it not murdering people value. But um, yeah, the CEO certainly can't control a hundred thousand person company, but if their mission is well i don't know if indoctrinated is the word in in a positive way but if all of his you know next level managers and then the managers below them and the managers below them down the pyramid all instill and really enforce a certain standard then it can trickle down to every little team like you said where the you know the door engineering team and the um cowling engineering team they can all still It all get the message gets to everyone because it clearly I mean, South Korea has effectively zero murders per year like or one murder per per hundred thousand people, not per year, per hundred thousand people. And it's got to just trickle down to everyone right from the essentially from some unified spirit or values that all of them have. It's it's a really interesting thing to think about, Um, especially as you start thinking about violence in America and South America. I think I was reading about Venezuela and Brazil, actually, that's where it came from. It came from this podcast. I was reading about the EVTOLS and how they're valuable in Brazil because violence is so high and they have talked about the murder rate in Brazil and how and the violent crime rate and how crazy it is. That's why people don't really want to drive around. If they can stay in the air above the violence, that's where they get this. That's where it was. So anyway, somehow that tied back in here. But um, but, yeah, it's a good point. I mean, big companies seem like they're impossible to control and it is for one person but i don't know you think it's just got to be a long-standing thing and maybe boeing used to have that culture of you know of of workmanship but maybe it's maybe it's slowly eroded and now it's not there it's hard to know
1: well you really raise a couple of good points here because i was recently watching again some of the steve jobs comments on hiring and And early on in the Macintosh world, he got into Apple, got into a big world of hurt on the people they were hiring and how that drove sort of generationally in the company problems uh, of of quality and performance. And and they they felt like he needed to remove whole sections of middle management out so that the technical leaders could then also have to be managers because they were the best people to to be on those roles instead of a dedicated person that manages the uh, the humans that are involved in the group it's someone who's extremely knowledgeable what's going on and feels like no one else can do it so they step into that role which i kind of want and, and i think you also raised a, a second point which is culturally or education wise are we slipping a little bit because if you listen to elon musk and his hiring style they don't really try to find b players they're really trying to find a players and people that have taken on responsibility and, and that's a sort of a different way of looking about it from an engineering organization when you apply to a tesla or spacex or name the 50 companies they have running right now what they're looking for is that you've taken a a project and you've run that with that project as the lead, like you own that bit. So there's this little personal responsibility with that, and it's an interview question of explain to me how that project ran, explain to me what it did, because they they what they do is they're they're fishing out the people that were just peripheral to that project to the people that were core, and they hire the people that were core and taking them in, and in a Boeing situation because you need a lot of people, maybe they're just kind of getting in a theory, watered down. is what we would say in engineering. Um, you know, hope that that's the case, but it's starting to feel like that because there's something going on within engineering that leads to these sort of defects. And I know SpaceX has kind of gotten to that situation before. But obviously, they've had a lot of crashes in their rockets and they've taken taken that as part of their development process, but it also may weed out employees that that can't really do the job it's really fascinating time
0: well moving on to a boeing competitor airbus has sold just two jets in july uh this reporting by forbes and qatar airlines is um, once again very unhappy with them so uh the ceo of qatar qatar airways sorry um akbar al bakar uh, has basically said there's a, a degradation um, of the fuselage surface just below the paint on some A350s, and uh, they said it's serious and they're pretty unhappy with it. I think they've had to ground some aircraft. Uh, I mean, is this pretty common that these these fights kind of get into the uh, into the media cycle?
1: No, no, not until they get to really the lawyer stage where they're starting to sue one another because you don't want to bring, want to bring the press into it. I mean, you have to live with these people, right? It's like uh, getting upset at your local coffee shop guy. Uh, There's someone you have to deal with all the time. So you want to have a, a decent relationship. You don't want to bad mouth them to the, to the newspaper. If you can avoid it. Yeah. Right. And, and for whatever reason, uh Qatar cutter um, is having a big problem with paint and they're really upset with, it sounds like a paint adhesion issue, which to me sounds like either some type of UV degradation of the composite system or some sort of issue with the lightning protection system on the airplane uh, that is degraded. And then paint is <laughs> the paint is just the, the visual sign that something is wrong. Now, the problem, if there is really a problem, and it looks like there's a problem because there's so many voices involved with this at the moment. But if you're going to try to, quote unquote, fix a paint adhesion problem on a composite airplane, that's really difficult because the the thing you don't want to do is start grinding away at the surface of a composite airplane because you're going to have manifest manufacturing escapes and you're going to damage the structure as you're trying to clean it and all that versus aluminum airplane. There's just a lot of ways to clean it and repaint it and fly it on out. So they're kind of an impasse. And obviously, Airbus hasn't always been that busy in the summertime. Anyway, I'm not taking too much uh, into that, but this these fights are getting in with these airlines are just bizarre. And my guess is it's mostly COVID related, but we shall see.
0: Well, do you think it's, I mean, you said, obviously you want to keep it out of the press, especially if it ends up being a legal issue, but is this something that they want to press Airbus to maybe get them to settle or pay for it just to quiet it down so it's out of the press? I mean, could it be that kind of tactic?
1: Oh, sure. And the rumor was is that the airline had deposited an airplane at Airbus's facilities and left it on the tarmac. And that rarely happens. I can't remember Well, I can't remember a time where that happened. Uh, but that doesn't happen very often. It'd be like if you bought a General Motors car, like taking it to Detroit and dropping it in the CEO's parking space and saying, here here it is. That's, the, that's what it means. Uh, it's bold. It's really bold, right? Because there's a lot of people between... The airline and the CEO is a lot of sales staff support people between those two. Uh, so you've basically run over everybody on the airline side and on the uh, and on Airbus's side to get to the head of the company and to basically you know, bang on the guy's desks and say, I need this fixed. I'm not getting the support I need and I'm not going to take it anymore. That's what it says. Uh, it's a bold, bold move, and i i that's like glass measures. You must be really upset to to get to that point, and obviously they're upset. How Airbus deals with it though is gonna be super quiet. Airbus will typically and Boeing will do the same thing. They will never say anything in the press about an airline customer unless they haven't paid uh, but for, this one is gonna be done in conference rooms and negotiation tables for the next couple of months. I, I just wonder why Airbus doesn't say, oh, all right, screw it. We'll just repaint it. That seems like a simple solution, but maybe it's deeper. Maybe there's something that Airbus is dealing with that they don't have an answer for yet, or maybe they disagree on uh, that. There is a pain issue. And it, you know, it's, it's, Airbus, But Airbus really can't say anything here. That's, that's, that's the problem. Airbus just seems like they're getting bludgeoned in the press and they can't fight back. You have nearly no way to fight back. So the
0: FAA has approved a general aviation heads up display. This is back uh, in late June. Um, Alan, this seems like something that would be like a no brainer, wouldn't seem like a big deal. But obviously, I know, you know, I've learned here from you that everything in a plane, whether it's just like the uh, you know, your 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 elbow rest um, or your armrest is going to go through certification and quite a lot of testing. So why is this uh, new heads up display such a big deal?
1: It just provides situational awareness to the pilot without raising your head up and down. So if you can imagine when you're driving your car, how, how often do you look at the instrument panel, look at your speed? You, you don't tend to do that very often because you have things around you providing relative input. Like you kind of know, you can hear the engine roar, you can look outside, you can see other cars going with you. And you, you don't really look down, up and down a lot, up and down, up and down, up and down. On an airplane, you have to look up and down a lot. Right, because there's so much information on the instrument panel that tells you uh, altitude, airspeed, direction, uh, whether you're trimmed or not, all these all these different pieces. What airport you're heading to? What the frequency at the next airport is? All all the stuff is happening, and it's not really the easiest thing to pick up human-wise. It's not the easiest interface. So if you can put that information in front of the pilot, that makes the chances of error go down. And it's surprising because of some of these uh, heads up displays that are going on part 25 airplanes like airliners have, have really have the potential to really decrease accidents by upwards of 20%. That's a lot uh, in, in consideration that most uh, aircraft accidents are pilot induced somehow. So you can give the pilot more information and provide a much more stable platform to interpret that information, there goes the, some safety risks are, are, are gonna go away. It's a great move, right? The, the problem, Dan, has been like, as you can you imagine, it, like you were just saying with the armrest, like I gotta have an armrest, it has to go through some testing. If you put up something that has flight information in front of the pilot, it's gotta be right all the time through all kinds of environments, because an error there could lead to an accident. So that means the cost of the project goes way up and the cost of the equipment itself is not cheap either. And the reliability has to be there. So the cost just kind of s- spiral. There's really nothing to do about it because it's a critical system. So the the, the systems get expensive. And that's why it has been uh, an impediment to getting them certified. It's not that much they haven't existed. They had, them in, they had them in cars since the 90s maybe even earlier but we haven't really put them in part 23s at all airplanes small airplanes at all because of the cost and do I want to go buy a thirty fifty thousand install on an airplane that you know I, I can fly reasonably well and I feel very safe in. Yeah, maybe. I and mean, if I'm flying in the mountains at nighttime, I sure as heck want to have that. Or if I'm flying from place where it may be foggy and I can put the camera system with it, uh, I definitely want to have it. So it's going to uh, the FAA is making a lot of changes in part 23. And this is one of them they're, where they're trying to lessen the requirements of certification for, for items that can add significant safety. And this is one of them. So we'll see. And uh, we're, we're going to have to kind of watch and monitor how this goes over the next couple of years to see it, how much safety improvement it does. creates. it should.
0: All right. So moving on to our EVTOL and electric segment, first up on the docket is uh, aviation. So they've uh, signed a deal with uh, DHL, which is obviously one of the larger, one of the top four, top three. I don't know if you can't count Amazon on there now, but um, you know one of the top, uh, you know, logistics and uh, package delivery companies in, in the world. Uh, DHL Express is adding 12 of Aviation's uh, e cargo uh, plane, which has a payload of 2,600 pounds, range of 815 kilometers. And uh, they say it will recharge, recharge in 30 minutes or less between flights, which is pretty amazing. I mean, just hearing that. So, um, Alan, where do you fall on this? I mean, I, I know it seems like a, a practical move to start with a lot of these electric uh, vehicles. Um, you know, in the sort of commercial sector where you don't have to worry about passengers, right? Just the pilot and a bunch of uh, corrugated cardboard. But, I mean, do you think this is a good move for DHL and we'll see more like this?
1: I think you will. I think the the cargo uh, routes make a lot of sense. There's a lot of, of shorter runs, relatively shorter runs that are being serviced by sort of the caravans, the Pacific caravans of the world uh, and the, the Sky Courier that that, Beach slash Textron slash are building at the moment that they're doing for FedEx. But uh, there's definitely a space in there just because of the, the timing of the routes and you know what the downtime is and that you're not trying to like a 737 for Southwest Airlines where it, it lands and 20 minutes later it wants to be back in the air for another three hour flight. That's not something an electric aircraft is going to be able to do, but electric aircraft sure can do scheduled service that's two, three runs a day and you want to do it inexpensively, and you know what the cargo sizes are generally out of a particular city, absolutely. That would make an infinite amount of sense if the cost is right. If if the cost of the aircraft is right, it can make a lot of sense. And I think DHL, like we're going to see from a lot of airline operators, are just putting their toe in the water to see how well this is going to work. and, And is it really going to be the half hour turnaround that they say? And is it going to produce uh, an overall cost savings on the maintenance side, which is what we're talking about in downtime, because there should be less downtime in flying these aircraft. Uh, and the the efficiency is going to be up there also, uh, you would think, just because getting rid of fuel changes, and using battery changes the way you can make the aerodynamics work on the air, aircraft. And George Bai's been doing that at Bai Aerospace, and I think they're one of the really first ones to, to figure out, because they were flying it, that once you don't need fuel, you have to store fuel in tanks, you can make the aircraft and the motors are a lot smaller. That's the other part. The motors are a lot smaller. Then you can make the aircraft very sleek and efficient in the air. Those are benefits you just can't do on a regular piston airplane today. So this this is going to be uh, a stepping stone. I think it really is going to be a stepping stone. The Joby announcement. They're going to supposed to be at the New York Stock Exchange uh, Thursday when I think when this episode releases. So that will be an interesting one, too, to see how the market <laughs> reacts to the electric vehicle uh, stuff because electric vehicles are coming. It's a question how much impact are they going to have?
0: So moving on, speaking of, uh, of, you know, this adoption of aircraft, Lilium is... Uh, inking a big deal with Azul, which is a major carrier in Brazil, uh, the founder of JetBlue here in the United States, also one of the founders of Azul. Um, But Lilium is sending 220 uh, of their seven-seat Lilium jets, which retail for around $4 million a piece, it will look like. And so that's going to end up being around a billion-dollar deal for Lilium. Um, you know, and this is just, I think, the latest in a bunch of, sh- of strings of these big orders of companies, you know, like United and all these others, you know, taking a chance on future delivery of some of these uh, EVTOLs. So, um, you know, Lilium has a, a relatively unique aircraft compared to some of the others. You know, it's got all those sort of mini ducted fans. Is that w- how you would characterize them, Alan? Right. Yes. Oh, Yes. Yeah, so a lot different than than the, I mean, similar overall, you know, white, sleek, very futuristic, uh, but a lot of the little ducted fans rather than the uh, propellers. Um, I mean, what sticks out to you about this deal between Lilium and Azul?
1: Well, I, th- I think they're really trying to get into the helicopter market in like Sao Paulo, where which is a big helicopter market, uh, because there is sort of two worlds, economically speaking, of the millionaires, billionaires, I would assume that do fly around in helicopters right now from the tops of buildings. And if you can do that less expensively or maybe make some sort of like Uber event in Brazil or Sao Paulo or Rio de Janeiro, then, yeah, that's probably a, a, a place to pull that off because there are pockets of extreme wealth in Brazil that you could tap for that marketplace. I think the, the real question, and Dan, you really pointed this out it's, it's a difference between the design of what Lilium is doing and what literally everyone else who's a serious contender in that electric aircraft market space are doing ducted fans versus propellers. And the ducted fan, every other company that has started ducted fans has pulled away from it because of tra- tra- transition issues. As you translate from uh, vertical flight to horizontal flight, there's some flight things in there about the way that a ducted fan works and uh, getting the airflow it needs. And do you s- stall the aircraft because of that transition uh, standpoint? So it's like the, f- the flight laws are not great on ducted fans, but Lilium's still going down that route, uh, and, and rightly so, as we're as we're going to talk about it shortly. You know, there's less propellers flying by your head, so to speak. Everything's much smaller and seems less threatening. And, and, and from a market standpoint and a and a consumer standpoint, I like that. I, I think that's the right. It looks safe, right? And a lot of a lot of aircraft have to do with the way that they look. I mean, a lot of aircraft. Programs have failed because of the way that they appear. And Lilium would be no different than any other. So the question is, has Lillium done something technically that they've overcome that the other aircraft, electric aircraft companies have decided not to even to go after? I think the jury's still out on that right now. Uh, but I think – do. You, Having read right up on Brazil, isn't Brazil the right marketplace? I've always thought Brazil would be a great marketplace for any electric vertical takeoff and landing aircraft because they had that. They're already sort of set up for it. Well, the U.S. isn't really set up for that. And they don't have routes set up when we're flying from skyscraper to skyscraper. That's not America. And we just don't tend to do that. But Brazil, it's a thing.
0: It, it is. And I listened to the uh, how I built this podcast with the JetBlue founder, and he talked about at the end about Azul and how Brazil just has tons and tons of little towns that had no airport that just had didn't have flight flights to them. So Azul has done really well selling lots of these short flights connecting the entire country. And so when you think of it like that, I think this makes a ton of sense for them because that already seems like their sweet spot where they're getting people um, in the air and mobile who otherwise couldn't have been. And so I think this is definitely an evolution, like you said, or like we alluded to earlier, the violence in in Brazil, unfortunately, is also going to make this an attractive option for people who want to travel by helicopter and not put their families at risk if they're, you know, potentially a kidnapping um, candidate or whatever you'd call it, probably, you know, a a kidnapping risk. Yeah. So um, it does seem like it, that's a country that's really built for this and that they'll give it a good hard try to see how it works. So, so yeah. And speaking of speaking of danger, um, we'll link to this video in the description, but we're going to close here with this Russian hover bike. Uh, and this is a funny article by new Atlas because one of the lines they say, we thought it was the just, or just the vehicle for aspiring amputees was is a quote from this article. Um, and, uh. It's literally if you imagine a person standing up and four one looks like one foot or 18 inch propellers on all four sides of their legs, like within a foot of each leg. And then you just like hit go and go up. But this guy was testing it in Dubai, crashed, fell backwards. And somehow the propellers shattered on the ground before they could cut him in half. And then it tipped all the way over on top of him, and the other one somehow missed him. Alan, I mean. This man, does he know how lucky he is to be alive? He must. But why was he up there in the first place? Good grief.
1: Well, it's it, there's a lot of it, there. it's sort of right brotherish in a sense. And uh, when you watch the early, early aircraft uh, world in 1908, 10, 12, 15, somewhere in kind of pre World War One, the aircraft designs were nuts and the pilots were in peril all the time and obviously a lot of pilots died in those times because the aircrafts just aircraft weren't reliable the engines weren't reliable the the structure wasn't reliable the propellers weren't reliable none of it was reliable (laughs) and so now we're in that sort of phase again of we can make something relatively simple that it'll lift us off the ground but To make it reliable takes a lot more money to do. (laughs) And so, therefore, you get these designs that are sketchy, in my opinion, safety-wise. Not that they couldn't fly, I'm sure. Well, this one has zero
0: margin for error. Zero margin for error. I mean, if you fall off one side, and, and what happened, I guess, on this flight was that some system that helped stabilize it started, I said it was a barometer or something, and the thing just started bucking like a you know, like a mechanical bull. And then it went down from like a 100 feet. And. I mean, this would have been a gruesome, gruesome, even if it just even if it's just maimed and not killed, it just would have been gruesome because these propellers are literally surrounding his body. No, no ducts, no guards, like nothing. It's just buzzing right there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you're right that this was a lucky break for the industry in general, even though people would be like, well, that doesn't represent all of us. Um, it's still it's still going to be a, would be a black eye for EV, EVTOLs.
1: Oh, sure. This is why I think this is why a lot of EVTOL flights are so hidden right now is that they ever have a crash. It's just going to really hurt stock prices in the industry.
0: Well, that's going to do it for this week's episode of the struck podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Be sure to subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, and check out the description below for more information about any of the topics we covered here today. Thanks again for listening. And we will see you here next week on struck. Strike tape weather guard, lightning text, proprietary lightning protection for radomes provides unmatched durability for years to come. If you need help with your radome lightning protection, reach out to us at weatherguardarrow.com. That's weatherguard, A E R